Welcome back to Permaculture Tonight. My guest tonight is a good friend of mine, Daniel Lawn. He really was the first permi along with this client he was working for close to where I live. They were the first permis that I had ever met. And it was about an hour from my home. I had just started writing the permaculture student and I was ready to share my rough draft with someone who was an expert. And lo and behold, here appears Daniel Lawton, there to give me advice and to encourage me and to tell me like, you know, what I was doing right, what I was doing wrong, and really helped me. And it was incredible, really, really was incredible. And he helped me throughout and read the whole thing, gave me feedback in depth. And he and perhaps Rosemary Morrow were the person, people that gave me the most feedback. And I really, really give a big thanks to them. And I appreciate them. And he's back tonight. He's going to talk to us about a ton of things. I just know it. I know things have, uh, he's expanded permaculture tools to having a North American branch. We'll probably talk about that. And I know he's been making biochar lately, so we'll probably talk about that. But other than that, it's all on the table. So we'll hear about it. Here we go. So uh, you've been doing some biochar, I see. Do you still smell like it? My wife wants to know. No, I'm all good. How, how many days did it take to go off? The smoke, uh, probably, um, uh, probably a good three days for it to come out of my hair. I think. Even after a shower. No, it didn't come out after the shower. It took a couple of. It took three days. Three day, three hair washes for it to come out of my hair. Yeah. I might have to go camping or something. Cause my wife won't let me get yeah. into bed if I smell like that. I'll make the new mattress smell. Yeah. No. Um. That and combined with the, you know, biofertilizer I've been I've done as well in the past. I smelled like that for about five days, I think. What does that smell like? Uh, fermented cow poo. Ooh. And yeah, what does it so, smell like um, at the end? I, uh, I had a blockage after I first made it, my, my last batch when I first was starting to use it, and I unclogged it <laughs> with a bit of Rio Bar stick and, and um, and it just exploded on me, and I got about five liters of it on me. Oh. Like it just got it on my head, it made it on my mouth, on my face, down my shirt, all over my back. Oh man! Yeah, these, so these I, I things smell- you don't tell people when they start the PDCs, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I smelled, I smelled very, very interesting for a few days. I was like wearing lots of deodorant, which I don't normally wear, and I had some. Someone gave me some body wash at some point that I had in there which I would never normally use so I was using that in the shower just and I smelt like a perfume shop combined with a dairy farm yeah it wasn't really getting rid of the smell it was just sort of trying to mask the smell and it didn't really work very well did you, so I was, out? Um, did you try like vinegar I actually did try vinegar yeah um, I tried um that was the first, well, at least the first day. It actually helped a bit. It got rid of quite a bit of the smell. And I also used, um, um, I also used, uh, <laughs> um, disinfectant. Yeah, because that's what the smell is anaerobes, right? Yeah, that that the vine- vinegar and the disinfectant took a lot of the smell away, but it didn't remove it. So it was sort of ingrained in my skin a little bit. Ooh. So I actually literally poured. I was in the shower and just poured straight vinegar bottle all over me and 
I did the same thing with the, the disinfectant, just like poured it on me just to try and get rid of the smell. It helped. I got rid of at least 50% in the first shower, but I still smelled terrible. You know, I bet you're immune to a bunch of new things now. Yeah, well, I got some in my mouth. Oh, whoa. When it, ex- when it exploded on me, so yeah. Um, oh, man. But, uh, I've been a, just a bit of like whole body inoculation with, you know, beneficial soil bacteria. Or at least, you know, the, you know, the whole thing with like uh, poison, the whole thing with contamination is it calls all these good things out. So maybe, you know, that there's that too. You cause this big defense to happen. So, so you, so biofertilizer takes like three months of fermentation, right? Or is it longer? Yeah. So I, um, um, had it, had it had it for um for two months uh fermenting um uh locked away from from air so i'm using um paul taylor's based off paul taylor's recipe um and i um you know which is also based off of lang ingham's work um i did something a little different i had a bit more resources available to me so i have actually made it in a thousand liter ibc or, or uh liquid um liquid pellet um uh, like a cubic meter liquid pellet instead of in the 200 liter drums um so i actually worked out that i can i can actually take most of it out without actually allowing oxygen to go back into the actual pellet itself because it sucks itself in as you drain out the liquid without having to add without any air going back into the the product oh wow so um, it was. It. I used it for five months. I've I've got some bottled up because I just made a new batch, um, just the other the other week. I made a new batch of it. So I used it for five months, um, and the last bit I had to. I couldn't get it all out without adding air to it. So I um I bottled it up into into. Well, I bucketed. It, I put it in buckets, um, so yeah. I can seal the air out of it again. So I put it into buckets and sealed it up. You know what you could uh, do? So I can make a new batch? You know what you could do is the thing you do with olives. You know, you could put a layer of olive oil or oil or something on top of, of the biofertilizer. It, and what would happen is that as you let an air above the oil, it wouldn't interact. It would be like a, a seal. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the stuff that I was doing. If I if I if I took out a, a decent amount, you can you can add um, you can add some some yeast with some um, molasses back into it again to to create some more um, fermentation to to produce you know re- remove the remove the oxygen out of the system. Oh, that's um, I was I was filling the buckets right up, and then the stir ag- ag- adulation of just moving them around. Uh, they gasify off a little bit, so some of them actually the lids popped off them, um, even though it's been sitting around for so long. Um, wow! So I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. This is awesome. So you to take out the oxygen, you're adding in molasses and yeast, and that that just digests it. And then, do, how long do you have to wait after you add that to get the oxygen out and for it to go through? Uh, full enough stages to be broken down enough to be used in the soil. Um, what after you re-add it again? 
Yeah. Um, I don't think you have to. I, I don't believe you have to wait any any particular time period for that. I mean, um, you can add that straight straight on the garden if you need to. But every time you open it up, um, you're adding. You got to be you're adding oxygen to it. And if it's a, in this case, it's a um, an anaerobic uh, bacteria that's that's doing the work. You're exposing it to to death by adding it to oxygen per se. So um, you've just got to be uh, conscious and aware of that. Um, that's why I had mine. I've had mine in a um, in a thousand the thousand liter um, pellet size container, and I can drain most of that out um, without adding any oxygen to it, which is which is great. Um, so that's that's a big bonus uh, for me doing it doing it this way. Um, and I don't have to use it all at once. I can slowly tap off. Um, amounts as I need them. So, what kind of a space are you working with? Because you said uh, the last batch you said lasted you five months. So, are you doing like a bio-intensive plot? Are you doing like a garden for home? Um, no, I, I work working for a, a company that has a has a permaculture garden for um, their staff and, and somewhat for the community. And I'm actually using it in the garden, but I'm also uh, there's also 17 acres that the that the owner has, so I'm using it out there. But most of it actually goes either to the staff members because they get to take any of the resources that I produce home, so they use it in their own gardens, um, or I actually trade it for food. Um, and other supplies for the garden itself. So as part of the community in the greater Sunshine Coast uh, where I am, I trade it with other permaculture um, places and farms um, for different produce. The produce goes to the staff members and the or, or resources that I need. So I just made a new batch of the biofertilizer and I wanted... Um, good liquid little good fresh runny cow poo basically um which funny enough is actually hard to find um especially when you want 200 liters of it um so i actually traded traded fertilizer for it which will make more of it with a local school and i also traded for raw milk which is quite funny here because this is a government funded school providing me with raw milk uh, which the government is against having public access to. Uh, so that's sort of, that's, that's sort of hilarious. But the guys I'm dealing with, I mean, it's a farm that's at the school and the, they're farmers and they're from the local area, that, you know, and they know I'm using it for fertiliser. I actually got the colostrum, so it's raw colostrum I got um, as my milk substitute to go into the fertiliser, which is fantastic um, and quite a rare thing that I would you would generally have access to right uh, and then other things like some other um, I, I sometimes work with um, Noosa Forest Retreat it's, which is on the Sunshine Coast here and I've traded stuff for bananas for them so um, I wanted some banana suckers some more and I also wanted bananas like bunches of bananas and I traded by a fertilizer for bananas which disappear at the workplace, people take them home and eat them at work, and that. Um, and I and I traded for bananas as well. Um, uh, you know, and, and also the, there's 
nearby is the local community garden, which is Yandina, um, Yandina Community Gardens, which is a permaculture garden. I mean, I traded for them for, oh, I gave them some and then went, and they, 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 I get a load of limes off them. They have a big lime tree there. So I get a load of limes for those and put them in the, in the lunchroom for staff to take home. So there's a lot of social equity attached with getting biofurt on yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I used a lot of it on site. Um, a lot, a lot of it on site. Um, uh, in the soils for the so for where you, I'm growing vegetables and that. So. Do you guys get frost there? We do, but um, not very often. So. Uh, I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't live in a very, very cold part of the Sunshine Coast, but I don't think we've had a frost at all this year. Not that I'm aware of. It's been quite a warm winter, um, but we do get frost. But I mean, you'd be lucky to get four a year on the Sunshine Coast here, um, and that would generally only be in the colder sections um, away from the coastline that you would get uh, frost. So you guys are like the California of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's subtropical, but we're we're you know we're in the mid to um, closer to the equator part of subtropical, or closer to the tropical part of tro- subtropics. Yeah, when you said bananas, that you know gave me a hint. <laughs> you know, sorry. The, the, when you said bananas, that gave me a hint. You know, down in LA, they're doing bananas. Um, and they're getting fruit. Yeah, we don't have any problem. I mean, there, there were there used to be a lot of banana growing in the area. They grow a lot more further north now. Um, they don't they don't grow really banana plantations here. But we don't have any problems with growing bananas here. Even the frosts that we get, they get a bit burnt leaf wise. But they don't. I don't think you'd ever have a banana plant die from frost in this area. It's just not cold enough. You know, not unless you planted your bananas in the in your frost microclimate area which is obviously not where you want to grow them so i know we had a load of bananas when i grew up on on the property i grew up on and i don't remember any of them ever dying from frost i don't even remember any of them getting any frost issues at all but they were up up on the higher end of the slope so where the frost doesn't really sit that's awesome so you and then you also made this biochar. So you're making all these products for the for these partnerships you're making in the community. Um, you recently expanded uh, the permaculture tools uh, company of yours, right? Yeah. So uh, at the beginning of the year, um, we've rolled out the uh, permaculture tools USA. So now there's a there's a USA distribution. Um, for tools, so anyone in the US that orders will order through the USA site, which you can you can access from the main site, um, and it's it's distributed from the US. So that um, that brings the um, well the 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 kilometers per product down. It also brings the price down for shipping because um, it's it's US based. So the US would was the largest. Um, uh, international customer, I suppose, or, or, or country that I, that I sold to. Um, so it was the first one of point of call to 
to uh, outsource to a, a distribution center. Um, there's a couple of others that are that are on the cards in the into the future, but um, yeah. So that that's that's been interesting. Um, well, all right. So let's talk about promo code for tools for a second. So I know how I feel about it, but I want I want to hear what you, what what you would say is. The number one things that differentiate your tools from everyone else's tools. Um, right. Well, when I think about that, I think more of the the handmade stuff that we do, um, rather than than the factory made stuff. But then, and still, it's on a same sort of sense as well. Is um, you know, I, I've I've been doing this a, a long time, and, and tools have been my passion since I was a teenager, and. Um, the, the tools that are that are used, the tools that are that are sold, that are the handmade stuff, and even the, the factory made stuff, I test the, all of them, um, and a, a lot of the ones that come that are handmade are actually my my designs. Okay, they're based off other things, but they're based off my experience. So I get a, I get samples made, and then I test them, and then make alterations to them, which my toolmaker finds very interesting. <laughs> so. Um, um, uh, and the stuff that, that, that we get that, that's handmade, we make um, either from recycled materials or, or reused or recycled or, or upsourced or from best sustainable practices that we can do. So some of the wood that we get um, is not uh, recycled or reused, um, but it does not come from... Um, intentional felling for timber sources. So there is some handles that, that, that aren't the main use handles that I use, but the handles that are going to be coming out on, on the next um, uh, level of tool that I'm doing. So I'm, I'm working on a new grade of tool. Um, and now they come, that, that, that wood comes from uh, areas that are felled for whatever reason it may be, so uh, might be for agriculture, but the instead of it being piled up and burnt, um, I have people in the community to find this timber and we purchase it. So there's a specific tree that we they use. It's a very very good tree um, for handles, um, but it's not very common and it's not something that I would want someone to go into the forest and cut down. Now the trees do get cut down, but when they when, when this one's found, uh, I have connections that, that notify us so that we can we can put it to proper use instead of it getting burnt because it'd be, it's a total waste. Um, so those are the those are the things that the the steel the steel comes from recycled sources um, that we use um, for main blades and that. So most of the ones that I that I would sell they come from uh, recycled truck truck leaf spring steel. So they're not just leaf spring steel, they're actually from old truck springs that are actually for turfing out. So they're therefore, they're throw out stuff that we actually purchase back off um, uh, truck suspension companies that, that replace the suspensions when the suspensions are shot and broken. I'm holding so, the rate, of, well, keep going. <laughs> Yeah, so um, 
and and then the, the other thing is that the, the the tool prices the price is based on what I what I pay for and, and what what the people that, that make the stuff my master toolmaker and his apprentices they stipulate pricing I don't make pricing so they charge what they want to charge um, so there's 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 no they don't get underpaid for what they do they get paid very very high price okay he is and wins awards for some of the best tools that you can get in Indonesia. So last year he won the um, he won best Chris. Now the Chris is a close quarter dagger that they make. Um, it's a traditional dagger that that uh, and a traditional Indonesian dagger. It's a wavy dagger. Um, now he uh, he won he won best for for that uh, for that year. Um, He's only just finished the competition just recently for this year, so I don't know whether or not I don't think anything has been awarded yet, or I haven't been informed. But he normally wins. He wins uh, at least a first prize in something uh, every year. The other thing is he's uh, um, he's from the the tool a uh, tool making clan, so they they make tools um, uh, in their family, and they're they're passed down from generation to generation. Their tool making skills, and they pass from father to son. Now he knows they have records that he's fourth generation toolmaker, and they have been making tools for at least a hundred years continuously in his family line. Um, uh, so they know that they've been he's, they've been making tools nonstop, making tools and 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 weapons in the early days. Um, for for a hundred years continuously in his family line, he's been he's been making tools since 1971, and it's the only thing he's ever done. He did it as an apprenticeship from his father, and he's been doing it ever since. Wow. Well, you can tell that these these tools are different. The moment you pick it up, the moment you it sits in your hand. It feels completely different from every tool I've ever held, and that's—I mean—that's why I have four uh, four rice knives. I have every size that you offer because every one of my family has one, and we go out and we chop it <coughs> off together, and it's wonderful. And I want—and when people come over, I want people to just pick them up and just use them and, and understand what real tools should feel like and the satisfaction that you get when you work with tools that are designed for people to use. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's quite interesting. People pick one up. Like, if you look at the rice knife, which is the most popular of the lot, you pick it up and you go, oh, this feels amazing in the hand. You go, okay, look, here you go. I also sell, I sell very good quality factory-made stuff as well. Surprisingly enough, my factory-made ones um, just about all of them are actually like the rice knife. The, the most popular rice knife that I would sell in the factory made one is also balanced, which is quite unusual for a uh, a factory made tool. Now it's actually they're actually made in China, but they're made by an American company. Um, now I've chosen them for a reason because they make good good quality tools. Um, but you, you can still compare the two, and so the people think that the <laughs> the handmade one. It feels nicer and more comfortable in the hand. And so you do realize that it's actually, actually there's a, some people think it's actually lighter than the, than the factory way it made one, but that's actually untrue. The, the handmade one's actually heavier. But it's just, the balance is just superb. 
and it just feels right in the hand because you can feel that balance. And it's quite interesting to watch uh, my master blacksmith him make this stuff. And I have I haven't finished putting it together, but I filmed some earlier in the year of him making it. And you can see him make the tool, go through and make a lot of the process of the tool. And at some point, he doesn't pick it up and balance the tool. Okay, and it's really interesting. He gets a point, he puts it up, and he soars a little bit off the handle to what he thinks is the right length. Then it's finished, and I pick up the finish tools that goes through some other guys that do some dress work, and pick it up, pick up the finish tool, and it's balanced. Not once did I see anybody balance that tool. My master blacksmith, he did not balance the tool. His apprentice didn't balance the tool. And they also have another guy that, and there's some of them, two other guys, but there's another guy that always works there that, that generally finishes the tool. So a little, it goes through three hands. So there, there's the master blacksmith and there's at least two apprentices, sometimes there's a third there. Now, nobody balanced that tool. Okay, the, my, my blacksmith, he did cut the end off the handle to make it a little bit shorter, to make it the right length, but he did not pick it up and balance it. Now I pick up the same tool and I put it right in the middle where the blade joins the handle and the tool is perfectly balanced. But nobody else did that. I did that at the end. But nobody sat there and balanced that tool while they were making it. But it came out balanced. That is very, very interesting to watch that whole process of it go through that whole stage. But do they but do they measure it that way? Like when they pull a tool from the finished, polished moment, do they stick it on their finger or do they not ever do that ever? They never stick it on their finger and balance it like I did at the end. I stuck it on my finger and it was perfectly balanced. They didn't do that. They made they got the measurements right, but those things still change because it's it's a handmade tool. So the so the the blade, the steel can be slightly thicker or slightly thinner. Like there's little bits of variation. Same with the handle can be, the wood, depending on the wood, can be heavier or lighter slightly, but it was still became out balanced. That's fascinating. So they're, that, they're not intentionally doing it, but it's... No, they, well, they are intentionally doing it. They, they make balanced tools because, because they know that that's right, but nobody really, nobody actually sat down and balanced the tool while they were making it. It's intentionally balanced, but nobody actually did that balancing thing. They, my blacksmith, the master blacksmith, he did hold onto the tool at one point before he cut the handle off. And then he held it again to make sure it was right. But he never balanced it on the middle of his finger. He just held the tool in his hand like you were going to use it. Yeah, I think that's like doing the backflip instead of like being like doing a somersault. You know what I mean? They just do back. They just do like the flip. They, yeah. They, well, they, well, they, they weren't they, actually. Well, he wasn't actually balancing. He was just holding it. And yeah, um, no, no, I mean, I have I mean. set measurements that are, that are. I mean, they have they have to adjust them a little bit. But the set measurements for how long the handle should be and how long the blade should be based on each tool. Um, so they do do that as well. So they make sure that they're in those sort of parameters. But um, I just find it. I found it very very interesting to watch that whole process and nobody. Nobody balanced that tool out, but it I came out per perfectly balanced. I think he balanced it out when he held it. That was he did balancing it. He out. did hold it because you can feel when the tool's balanced or not. But to get on it, pull it out, and I put it straight on my finger, and it's perfectly balanced. It's level. It's just sitting there, and and nobody else did that. And when I make a tool like that, I will do that. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I go, oh, I need to chop a little bit off the end of that. Or I go, oh, okay, that's not too bad. I can sand a bit off the end of that to get that to get that balance right. But it just came out balanced. But they've made a lot of those tools at the same time. So that's fascinating. It it is it is very fascinating to watch to watch that. So. Um, so what's this meant? new line of tools? Sorry. So so tell us more about this new line of tools. Well, I'm working on a new line of tools that will come with a uh, with a ten year warranty, a ten year replacement warranty. Wow. Um, so it will have a, a ten year uh, global replacement warranty. Um, it includes shipping. Um, and I'm I'm trying to make a tool that won't that won't break. Like I mean, at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I took I've, I've, my sample ones that I've been working with are PT2, which is the large sickle, non-serrated sickle I have, and um, I've, I've tried a couple, and I've, um, I've definitely got my handle right, my wood right. I've got the wood correct, and I've got my connection correct. I mean, I've taken the blade, and um, I've taken it up against. Um, just about, I've chopped trees down with it. I I cut a, I had a pole of dried hard eucalypt gum, so, and I um and I'm holding it with two hands and using all my force possible and smashing it into the dry hard eucalypt pole and it. It, nothing's happened. I've done it multiple times over and over again, and the blade and the handle will not become disconnected from each other, no matter what I do. Um, I was also cutting a log uh, stump the other day. I smashed into a stump, and I didn't realize on the other side of it, someone had put a rock, and there was a quartz crystal there. It cut the crystal in half, huh. um, and, and into little pieces. There's some damage on the blade but there's no chip on the blade um the handle's all still attached um i need to make some adjustments here and there um yeah but it's uh it's there on it's on its way um it's taking longer than i thought i've been busy doing other things but um yeah that's that's the plan it won't be cheap uh but if you if you want a tool that will last a, a very very long time, this will be this will be it. They they will get made to order, so there will be none in stock. You will order one, and when it comes, it will come when it's made. So it will be made for you. Um, I won't have a huge range of them, but I will be choosing a, a select um, of the of the popular blends. Obviously, the PT one and PT two, PT eleven and and 29, so the the sickle, plain sickle, and the and the rice knife varieties, they will uh, they will all be on there. There's wow. there's another tool on the way which is actually like the uh, the sickle, the large sickle, but it will be a small one. So it will be the same, but it will be a small version, which is quite nice. So that will be included in it as well. Um, but they won't be cheap. But the idea is you 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 keep this. Um, and you know you've got this ten-year guarantee on on this tool. So if uh, something goes wrong uh, based on the guidelines, you you don't have to send it back. You just have to provide evidence of that, and 
a new one will get sent to you for free. Wow. Okay, so I have two small rice knives already. Yeah. But if I got one of the high-end rice knives, how much would one of those be? Uh, I'm still working on pricing. Okay, okay. Um, but you'd be looking at at least a couple of hundred Australian dollars. Okay. You'd be over the $200 mark. But that will include a leather sheath that will come as standard with all the, uh, I'm calling it, it will be the ultimate range. So with all ultimate range will include a leather sheath um, as well. And it will also include shipping. So there will no be shipping charges applied to the ultimate range. It will be, that will be included in the cost. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Your tool will be shipped to you for whatever the price of the tool is. There's so no shipping charge. That's actually a steal because you're giving the, the the handmade tool in the handmade case, and it. I think we're forty cents on your dollar right, or you're forty cents on our dollar right now. I'm not sure. I know. I know. If I buy anything from the states at the moment, it, it's bloody expensive. Uh, yeah, it's forty <laughs> cents. It's forty cents to the dollar. So. Really, we're talking about it's less than a hundred dollars for a, a, a rice knife with a case that's all handmade, that's designed to last longer than ten years, having a ten-year warranty. These are the kind of tools that you want to pass down to your kids, because I mean, realistically, you're going to be using these tools for twenty, thirty years. You're going to be, if you've got family, your kids are going to be using it the entire time they're growing up. They may even take it on to use with their kids and their own families. I, I don't think I don't think that's that very expensive. I mean, the the rice knife itself, regularly the the one I have. I mean, the, it looks like it's uh, like a bird's eye wood. It's beautiful. It's teeny little like uh, tiger's eye kind of reflections, and I mean. It's gorgeous, but I think this was 45 plus shipping, you know, and that's you're talking about having one of these That's higher quality that has a 10-year warranty that is totally worth double the cost Absolutely night and day double the cost is, is always going to be right if you put a 10-year warranty on a tool, you know well, if you're only going to look at it, you divide it over. You divide the cost over ten years, and and that's that's what really that's what it's costing you per year. And if you look at going out and buying it, a lot of people that I've I've come across buying cheap rice knives. Um, and I sell cheap ones, but you know the cheap ones, cheap ones you can buy here in Australia compared to the cheap ones that I sell. Now I sell some cheap ones for eight dollars. The eight dollars, the cheap ones that you can from another company or some other companies are about the. Ten to twelve dollar mark. So mine's cheaper. I guarantee mine will last longer. But mine's eight dollars. So if you want to buy a cheap one, I got the cheap ones for you. No problems. Okay, it might last you twelve months. I got a twelve year month warranty on it, so it might last you the twelve months. It might last you a couple of couple of years. Um, the other ones, I get lots of. I've heard lots of complaints about them falling apart. Okay, they snap near the handle, and I said, well, my cheap one won't snap near the handle. I said, and I've even got one. It's almost identical to the other ones, the other common one that gets sold. You put them side by side, they look almost exactly the same. They're the same size, the same everything. Mine's $25, that, that same, exact same one. Okay, but when you bend the steel, mine doesn't really bend. The other one bends like it's made of, I don't know, plastic. Um, 
And I said, you just jiggle that back forth a few times and that'll snap off. Mine doesn't bend because it might look the same, but it's, it's not the same. Well, so. we all know, everyone over 30 knows that metal was different when we were kids. We all know yeah. it. Our toys were made out of different plastic. The, everything now, tool-wise, everything in the garden, the faucets, the spigots on things, the metal on those kind of, the connections between hoses, hoses themselves, everything is cheap. Yeah. So, and, and, and I mean, that's kind of like the first thing I noticed when, when I got the tool was it just feel, I mean, it, it, it feels right. I mean, in like in a classic sort of way, and it, and then it's beautiful. Um, and what, I I actually I do have I have the cheap um, plastic ones that I had, and that's why I debated buying initially buying uh, a rice knife from you. Uh, but I was like, oh, I rationalized that I would get you know, James would use the plastic one. So it's like, okay, James can use the plastic one. But then when I realized I couldn't sharpen the rice knife I bought in the store that um, the blade just won't take an edge. Um, I, got, I, I realized like they're like completely different animals. Like one is for to, to pretend to garden and to frustrate you and like take all the strength out of your hand. I mean, you can't grip those things when they're imbalanced and they're just plastic. Like you, you start sweating out in the sun, it's holding a wooden handle that thickens and thins right to your hand, you know? Instead of being a straight shot down, it's a different or it's a completely different thing altogether. I mean, you you can work much. It's enjoyable work. Yeah, you've got that different sensation of holding that handle. If you actually feel a lot of them also aren't even round. In um, and I mean they go they go they're thin and they go thicker and then they go thin again. But they're actually in the middle. They're actually not often round. They're actually. Um, laterally along the blade, they're actually slightly thinner and wider sideways. If you actually have a look at them, yeah. Um, so they're actually multi-dimensionally changed shape. They change shape in, in all on all four sides as they as they go around, which uh -huh. makes it easier to hold onto and grip. Yeah, no, I'm seeing that now. It's awesome. If you have if you have a look, it's not a lot of change. Are those little subtleties? I mean, when you've been making tools since you know what is it 1971 he's been making tools for and then is that's passed down for a hundred years you, you learn all these little things about these tiny little changes and and even the fact that you, well stuff you buy from the the factory made stuff that you in the cheaper stuff you buy you have a look at it the blade's straight when you pick up and have a look at the uh the handmade stuff that i sell you'll see that it's it's not just it's not just curved in one direction it's curved in multiple directions when you actually get the subtleties you have a look along the blade and it's curved one way and it's curved up to the tip and then it's rolled round a little bit as it comes back to the handle which is all about how you move with the tool itself so again it's it's the it's change of plane isn't two-dimensional it's four-dimensional it's on all four sides it changes shape as it comes down to the blade yeah, no, I totally see that, and I always, yeah. I always wondered about that. I was like, did I bend it or something? No, nah, you didn't bend it. That's how they come. I've had <laughs> people ask me that before. I'm like, I bent this, and I'm like, no, it's meant to be like that. What? I said, yeah, well, it's supposed to be like that. I mean, you don't, you don't pull things in a straight, straight manner, even when you're twisting your wrist. As you twist your wrist and pull towards you, which how you're using a rice knife, you, you're changing heights 
and angles as you come around and come towards yourself. So as you come around and come towards yourself, you actually lift up slightly as you come towards yourself. And you don't want the point, you don't want the tip pointing down, it needs to point slightly upward. So as you come around, it stays not getting caught on things as it comes around and back towards you. It's, 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 quite, it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. and, and you, you have cl like online classes so far for uh, doing these tools. I know you got a few videos, but are you going to be doing classes for these? Yeah, I've, I've got to get into that a lot more, um, and, and I'm working towards that uh, at this present moment. I've, I've, some people have asked me also about earthworks, so that's, uh, that's where I will be heading. I'm heading in that direction. So I'll be doing more... I've only got a few of the original tools as um, just some demonstrations on how to use them. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I, I will be doing, the idea will be to do all tools uh, on the website, but also uh, online instructional stuff about them. I tried to put together a, a crowdfund, a DVD on it a number of years ago, uh, but it wasn't successful. I, I just, I couldn't get the support for it. Uh, what year time. was that? Sorry? What year was that? Um, that was a couple of years ago now, so uh, might have been 2013, I think. Oh, wow. So that was like right before we met. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a little bit before we met, at least six months or a year before we met. Yeah. 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 So, uh, have you come back to the United States since we uh, since we last met? No, no, I haven't. Um, no, I haven't. I've uh, been to a few places since then. So, I've been back to Indonesia a, a couple a number of times, and and to Singapore, and um, well, I've been to Tasmania, but that's not another country. But first time I've been to Tassie, that was quite interesting. So, yeah, what's it like down there? Um. It's cold. <laughs> cold compared to where I'm from. It's very nice. I'd love to go back and have some more time to, to get around and, and have a bit more of a look. Um, I went to a really interesting property for a consultation, which had, there's, there's some photos on my, on my Facebook page of huge tree ferns that are like enormous. Uh, and this property was totally covered in them. It was really, really bizarre. I've never seen anything like it before. There was... There was thousands and thousands of tree ferns that were 12 foot high, 10, 12 foot high, um, and that's to the center trunk. So I climbed one of them. Um, like that's how big they are. They're huge. Uh, but the country that countryside, I mean, I only saw a small amount of it. Um, it was really nice. Um, um, and keen to keen to get back down there and, and go for a little bit of adventure in the in the southwest area in the national park, major national parks down there. So that would be nice. That's where uh, our original Greens movement came from, uh, down in Tassie. So I've uh, learnt and read a lot about that uh, through my university studies. So it'd be very interesting to go down and have a bit better of a look. The, the Greens movement? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so our green, our greens movement, or the and the start, what was originally the start of um, our our political greens party, and which is called the Australian Greens Party, um, started in Tasmania, um, based on on Tasmania needing to produce more power or wanting to produce more more electricity, and um, doing that with hydroelectricity, 
and um, as a result, they they were going to want to um, dam and go and and, and submerge um, existing well a existing lake which was quite unique. It's called Lake Petter, and um, it had a pink beach, um, a light pink beach, in uh, in remote uh, Tasmania. And there's big protests about it, and, and that's where a lot of this stuff started from. So um, they didn't choose. There was an option to spend more money and store less water but save Lake Petter. Um, and it was quite a big thing um, well before my time. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, it was unsuccessful in the end. Um, and then following on from that when they went to do um, some more work uh, in in wanting to produce hydroelectricity. Um, there was the most people, not everyone will know um, Lake Pedder, but a lot of people will know um, the Franklin River protest. Um, and that's where a lot of lot of that, well, that's where the Greens movement really started from, from, from there. So um, uh, I believe Bob Brown was involved in, in that and putting that together, who was the original Greens Party leader. Um, and that's where a lot of our, as a country, um, uh, understanding of, of Greens or Green, the Green movement, they would say, uh, started. So uh, us having a public awareness of, of uh, you know, environmental issues started from there and there was a lot of media coverage from it um so that that sparked a lot of that then so the idea of of destroying a a a large habitat to store water so we could produce electricity um in in a very unique part of our country it's it's very interesting if if anyone if anyone wants to get online and have a look up and have a look up lake petter um in tasmania that's um some very interesting stuff. There's some, there's some documentaries of it, and you can see the beach um, in the in the documentaries, um, and it's it's stunning, stunning stuff. And it, it's a it's a very very big big shame that it's um, it's now underwater by about 20 meters, I believe, something around that. Wow. It's, uh, the beach is still there <laughs> if you want to go scuba diving in some freezing freezing cold water. The beach yeah. is still there, so but it's just underwater. That happens. It seems like that happens every day. There's another thing that a politician signs away to a corporation or, you know, to a foreign country, and they just liquidate it, and then it's gone. Yeah. And what took, yeah. you know, millions of years to develop, and the accumulation of so many resources, so much biology, you know, like that's the thing. People talk about, oh, it took all this time, and it's like, yeah, he wanted the lives of like the bugs, lives of the animals, lives of the plants, all that life, all that life over and over and over again built that too. So it's, you know, we gotta, we gotta do better than what we're doing for sure. So tell yeah. me about Indonesia. What were you doing in Indonesia? Well, that's where I get my handmade tools. So going and uh, working with my blacksmith on, on well, the, uh, testing out stuff for the new ultimate range so that's where I got some tools made uh, just uh, working with him on that so is he close to where all those fires were happening like uh, that Willie Smith is dealing with no no nowhere near any of that sort of stuff so well, that's um, lucky 
it's a nightmare what they're dealing with uh, in those areas. Yeah. So. So. Um, and then I, I went back and uh, I went back again and I, I did some filming with him. So I was supposed to be there to do filming and then and then also work on um, this new range, developing this new range. But unfortunately, I couldn't get the some of the filming equipment that I needed that was apparently supposed to come multiple times and, and didn't turn up. So I was quite disappointed in that and quite disappointed in, in both the uh, US Postal Service and the Australian Postal Service because they both failed miserably. So apparently I had one package. It left the US and didn't arrive in Australia for five days. I don't know where it went in that five days, but apparently it took five days to fly here. So there's some plane flying around for five days before it actually landed. That's that's the apparent story that I was told. Well, you know, I this computer that we're talking on, I the first one got lost at sea, and I assume <laughs> that means there's a tragedy involved where the captain and the crew was also lost at sea, because we don't have robot ships yet. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it was really sad uh, that it was sad that I guess they lost my computer, but I think it was even sadder that Apple like didn't acknowledge the fact that they lost people. <laughs> oh man! Oh, no, no. I, I, yeah, yeah. I had I had one that was great. There were when I had it because I actually had to get these special microphones sent over. For, I sent them from over from the United States. So they're great. I, my my phone that I use, I use it for filming. I use it for pictures, and it's very very good. I very much like it. And I don't buy any extra equipment. I just buy a good phone. There's like five and a half thousand photos on my phone, and I have not had it a year. So, um, but uh, I've got special microphones that plug into the phone and uh, wireless mics that that I can use. That's what I was getting sent over from the states, and apparently. A um, our our border security, our our customs, was on strike at that present time. I, I can't. That's what Australia Post tells me. Like, oh, we haven't got it. It must be stuck in customs. So I call customs up and they go, "What? No, we got nothing to do with that." I said, "We won't even touch that parcel. It's just going to go straight through. We won't have anything to do with it. It won't slow your actions down at all." So Australia Post is just blaming customs, and customs is like, "It's got nothing to do with us at all. We're not we're not slowing your parcel down." <laughs> so. Yeah, so that, that was frustrating. And then Australia Post, they get it sent to Indonesia because it didn't come here on time. And then that, I don't know why it took so long to leave the country as well. Um, so, yeah. And then I had to deal with Indonesian customs when it got there. That was a, that was a interesting as well. Yeah, Man. especially when they're don't, don't, not speaking full English and I'm yelling at them in English trying to make sure I just want my parcel. I'm like, and you do realize you're costing, you know, these local people money. <laughs> it's like, but um, I eventually got my parcel. But I had to fly back there. I had to go back a second time to go back to do the filming. So it cost a lot of extra money, which is sort of very, very frustrating. And uh, it didn't all happen as planned, but I got the job done. So I've just got to translate some of the, uh, some of it, and uh, and put it all together. So. Well, I look forward to seeing that. I, I don't have a great experience like with tools that are this sharp. With sh I just started sharpening with a stone on like a scythe and for with your tools in the past year. And so 
having like a protocol, having a video that I can show my son and be like, all right, so now we're gonna go clear this area or chop and drop this. He's gonna have a vocabulary or a set of images and motions in his mind and patterns that he can work off of. And, yeah, yeah. and I, for one, really appreciate that. And I feel like that's what I'm doing with my book is I'm facilitating all this kind of information but I'm really creating avenues at the same time to more in-depth learning, like with your tools. Um, and that's why uh, I'm really excited about this because I can point all my students that are wanting to apply all this stuff to work um, uh, on your course next. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I feel that and it's quite interesting to, to see that because I, you know, I have kids of my own, I have two daughters and um, um, I see that myself and I see people that are freaked out about you know the kids that are around um, sharp tools and some people freak out a little bit about it um, and I'm like well they're they're used to that they understand it and well that is like some of a like my big premium machete is I mean it, it's not something it's a it's something you would get out of the, almost out of the middle ages as a sword um, and it's um it's not something to mess with and the uh, I've had people say, oh well, you know, like the kids and oh, the kids are fine. The kids know what to do. Like, you know, oh, someone will ask them. I said, what happens? What happens if this goes? Oh, you don't touch these tools. They're sharp. I'm like, yeah, okay. So what happens if you drop this on your foot? Your foot comes off. And I'm like, that is correct. So are you going to pick it up? No, daddy. That's right. It's exactly right. So they know not to. They won't touch those big ones because they're, you know, <laughs> dangerous. Um, but you know, when when I was uh, when I was in Indonesia, I actually uh, the last, one of the last trips I actually took my kids with me, and um, they both wanted to get their own tool. <laughs> so one of them one of them um, one of them bought a a small rice knife um, at at one of the markets. Um, and the other one bought a, a small, a small little tiny knife. You know, it's not sort of something you don't expect your five-year-old to go and buy a knife at a tool market. But um, I think it's, I think it's great if they've, they've got this uh, understanding of, of that sort of thing. And you know, my my eldest daughters requested a one of the the PT 11s, the small rice knife. And she wants right one, now. and I, I did have one for her. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think I sold it before she used it, <laughs> but I've got to get one new one made for her. So she uh, she wants one of the new uh, ultimate range ones done. So I've I've got to, to to do that for her. But the idea that you know this is something I'm not pushing this; they're just asking for it. And I think it's great to see the difference in in that to to other children that understanding of of. Of tools and the, and the understanding of the importance of them and, and what they're for. So. Well, it's really respect, and I think that if we don't give kids responsibility and we don't show that we trust them by exposing them to things that have some level of danger and some level of co-danger, you know what I mean? It's like not only are you endangering yourself, but you're endangering people around you, right? So it yeah. just it just shows that you believe in them, and so that's exactly right these amazing things start happening and coming out and uh james i mean james has 
a better record with his knives cutting himself uh, than I do. <laughs> I certainly have uh, cut myself. Uh, I think. All right, so I'll t- I'll share this story. Uh, Christmas morning, I had gone to uh, like the Sportsman's Den or something like that, and I had found these these matching knives on clearance, and I was so excited. There were there were the Bowie knives. He had been reading early American history, and he figured out you know everyone has Bowie knives. That's how they thought of Americans. I want this. And so I got matching ones for him and I. Christmas morning, we, we open them up. We, we, I brandish them. We open our knives. We brandish them. We're like, this is crazy. We have matching knives. We put them back in. I somehow cut through my um, sheath and like just so cleanly cut my palm open across the palm. Like, like surgical, like perfect. Like we could have sewn me up, right? Um, but I was too embarrassed, just so embarrassed. So I just like dealt with it and then like healed it myself, you know. <laughs> um, but now we laugh, right? And so my son just like looked at me and was just like, Dad, what are you doing? And I'm like, you know, that's this is the difference. This is the difference. It's like, I am a teacher that has taught myself these things and I'm teaching from these experts and showing off these experts and everything. I'm a conduit, right? But like my son, the next generation, is so legit. So so what's on the horizon? What what are you working on the next six months? What, uh, we got these tools that are coming up. Uh, you want to do some new videos? Are you, are you planning on doing a, a course that you, are you planning on going on tour um i'd like to uh, i don't know about this year um i did want to look at i mean there's two tours that i would like to look at doing one's the u.s and canada and one's throughout europe um i don't know whether that's going to happen this year i don't think so it's probably more like next year that something like that's going to going to occur um i am looking at expanding my business stuff out more um actually um i uh putting together i'm going to have to borrow borrow money (laughs) because i because i've invested all my money in my business um already uh i've I've had a preliminary offer from another company to uh, to buy them out, um, so that's that's exciting news. I can't talk more about that, but um, that'd be great if that that occurs. So that's another tool company. Um, uh, I'm uh, yeah, I'm, I don't know what to say too much, but I am looking at uh, expanding my business uh, out more. Uh, um, looking at hopefully being able to provide. Um, tool, uh, well, blacksmithing um, instructional courses. Really? Yeah, in in Whoa. Indonesia. Oh man, are you gonna film that? Uh, the course that would have this possibility. So I oh, uh, please, please, my um, son, my son only <laughs> wants to be a blacksmith. Like that, that would just make. I, I, I mean, I don't know of anything like that. That'd be incredible. So uh, a lot of it rides on on being able to borrow money um, to do what I, I I need to do. So kickstart. Um, I'll support you. Kickstarted. My crowd will support you. 
We'll support you. Come on, I'm gonna Daniel. Need, what I, what I, I'm, I'm at a point where at the moment, if I need to go further, I need to make a, I don't need to, I'm doing, been doing stuff in, when I first started, I, I took a leap of faith, but I didn't really have any money. And I just went, I'm going to do this because I love doing this and this is what I want to do. So I just did it. That's what I, had, I did. I had no money. I had no nothing. My ex-wife had left me. I, I lost my house. I had nothing. And I had my kids and my partner at the time. That's all I had and a, and a bit of stuff. Like, I didn't have anything. And I was like, I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to do what I want to do. So I did it. I'm still here five years later and the company's still alive. Um, to go to where I want to go to next, I need to make another leap of faith that it, it's, it's a, lo- a lot bigger and I need money. Um, before it was just jumping in but it will you know i didn't have anything <laughs> now i do and i need but i need to make that big leap um so i'm wanting to in the in indonesia i'm wanting to build a a new specific type of uh forge and workshop so it can be used for instructional purposes uh for for teaching and demonstration um, so that's one of the things that's on the card that's exciting. Um, but again, I've got to get, I've got to, well, I'm in the moment putting together a plan to take to the bank. <laughs> well, if the yeah. bank won't back you, come to crowdfunding and we'll try to help you out and we'll figure that out. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, crab, I need a, <laughs> what I want to do might cost me uh, like a million dollars, but, um, yeah, wow. it will be very, very interesting if I can pull all that together. Yeah, that would be more than most crowdfunding operations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I can do obviously bits and pieces. The stuff in Indonesia is, is slightly separate from some of the other stuff I want to do. Um, that's that's exciting, exciting stuff for me. Uh, putting together a new <coughs> a new work, a new blacksmithing workshop and forge. Um, it's something I actually want to put a couple of forges together in the same workshop. One that's um, one that's on display so that it's behind uh, a couple of large panels of glass, so that you can safely stand out of the humongous heat and and sparks of flying steel, and um, observe blacksmithing in it taking place um, and and the the forge of 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 tools. And the idea that you know you can come come by and on a, on a scheduled tour and and actually watch tools being made, or be part of a uh, an actual blacksmithing uh, class and actually and actually learn the the art itself. Uh, I've had a number of people ask and, and talk about that and request that. You know, um, there are a lot of people that think that I do a lot of blacksmithing. I don't. I'm a I'm a blacksmithing enthusiast. Um, I know how to make stuff. I understand the process behind things. Um, can I make the tools that come out of of my company? Um, I did make one. It's in the video, but I had a lot of help. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I understand. I think for me, it's more about the process of understanding how things work and the surprise of what you what you really need. Um, I did a, a small a two-day course with the Permaculture Research Institute, um, maybe maybe a little, maybe about 12 months ago, maybe 10 months ago, um, 
And we made a tool out of stuff that you could buy from Bunnings or Home Depot. I made a sickle. I didn't have any specialist equipment. The only equipment I used would be found in your everyday farm shed. I didn't use anything else. And all of the stuff I bought, I bought it from Bunnings here, which is the same as pretty much the same as Home Depot in the States. Wow. And we, we made it we made it all I didn't I also made the leather pouch for it as well. And I just bought that from a, just a standard um, leather saddlery. Um, but the tool itself, it was it was all made from from you know uh, the hardware store. So I used uh, the handle was the was a handle for a hammer. Um, the blade the blade was a bracket, a steel bracket that was designed for for holding two pieces of wood together for a, a, a beam. Okay, um, I used that. I used a um, <laughs> I used a part of a curtain rod holder ah. as the as the stainless steel sleeve. I used two nails, and I used glue. I used a uh, two part epoxy resin, and to make it, I used I used an angle grinder, a bench grinder and a handsaw and a drill. Wow. And I even heat treated it, and I heat treated it using, I made a, I made a, I made a fire. Now I made it in a specific way. I made the fire in a specific way. I used specific stuff in the fire, so I used very, very dense hardwood. And I also used used cooking oil to get the fire up to a very, very high temperature. So it was just a campfire so that I could actually get the tool up to temperature. And I used, um, I actually used clay to protect some of the tool and then I just heat treated it with water or quenched it with water. And it, it is only made of mild steel, but it held an edge and it's hard, it's, it's, it's um, hardened, it had a hardened edge on it. Um, and ended up being quite a nice, a nice tool, which is, I mean, it all went together in, 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 with the bits that I just said. Um, and I think uh, in the end, the balance wasn't perfect. Now, I, if I had time, I could have played with it a bit more. Um, but it was a, it was a good tool. It was a left-handed tool. I actually had a, I had a there was one student who was left-handed, um, so that was, he actually got that as a gift <laughs> at the end. Because obviously he was, I think he was American. Um, you don't get too many, you know, you don't, can't buy too many left left-handed hand tools, um, and that's why again we do left-handed hand tools as well, and we can custom make anything left-handed that you like. Um, so that was that was very interesting. Everyone's very, very surprised at what you can do with very little. You just need to have the understanding. Oh, okay, right. Well, a lot of people think you have to make the steel from scratch almost, and and like move it around and forge it and push it around. Well, not really. You just have to get it in the rush. You, you start with the right steel and then you get it in the, the shape you want. So, And yeah. our landfills are all full of it, so we could be mining those instead of creating any more. Yeah, well, going to, going to just a car wrecking yard is a gold mine. Right. Yeah, so... Um, 
going to going to a car a car wrecking yard is, is great. Or you can go and get you can go and get you know leaf spring steel or spring steel. So spring steel is pretty good. It's a lot more to work because it's in a coil, so for your suspension. Um, but the leaf spring steel it's pretty much already flat, <laughs> so you you don't have to do a lot to get it in the shape that you want. And as long as it's differentially heat treated, so the as long as it's it's got two sets of hardness, so the edge is hardened and the back is not hardened as as hard. Uh, it's a very good steel to work with. If it's all hardened in one, it's extremely brittle and it just you hit it against something and it shatters into pieces. Um, and if it's not heat treated, it won't hold an edge. So you just got to have that little balance between the two. And it makes a very, very it's a very, very good agricultural steel. It's very forgiving. Well, I certainly love it. Um, I know that uh, we we sometimes whack with a wrist-like motion with these, and I know we're supposed to be pulling, um, and, <laughs> and an elegant motion. Um, but it seems to work both ways. <laughs> yeah, you're not supposed to use it like that. You, I mean, when it's soft material, it'll it'll often it'll often work. The the bad thing is with the ones that are serrated. Is that um, the serrations are easy to be broken off by using it as a, in some sort of swinging fashion, right? Because um, if you if you ha- hit something hard, and that could also that also doesn't necessarily mean a rock. That can mean a, a hard piece of wood. You know, in that motion, you could actually snap a tooth off or just the end of a tooth. Um, especially with the the handmade ones, uh, the the teeth are hardened steel, so they're they're quite hard. So the hardness of the steel that we pull out of, of our tools is between 60 and 62 um, Rockwell hardness, which is very, very hard. It's about as hard as, you know, a steel, a common steel drill bit. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the hardness of when it, when it really starts to actually mess up the tool, I would say, is probably like on amaranth stems. Like if you're trying to whack those, um, they're going to be too woody. But like stuff that's green like grass... Yeah, you can grab yeah. and pull and grab and, and pull more to the, the side, less than towards you. You know what I mean? A little bit of more of that motion. But these yeah. tools, I mean, I don't know how I would really do my whole hand tool farming without um, superior tools. And the tools that, I, I mean, that they tend to make in America are big and blocky. Um, and they, they, they feel strong and it's like, yeah, and I use it and I'm like, wow, I'm tired. Yeah. You know? Um, and I'm not like saying, you know, I'm like, uh, an athletic gardener or, or not, but like these, these just make it so that I want to be out there. I pick up this and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go chop some things. And then I go and I clear <laughs> like a few paths and. And, and it makes weeding easier because, I, I mean, I, I if I want to reach into a path or a, a bed, I just use the bigger one that you gave me. Um, and I just reach in there and I just kind of just grab behind and just pull. And then it just removes that weed at the base. And I don't have to disturb the roots or anything. Um, and I don't have to bend over that far because of the amount of reach that you get on those larger ones. Yeah. Um, and then the smaller ones, I mean, man, just the smaller ones actually have so much more power, it feels like, so that when you're doing stuff close to your body, 
smaller ones are just Ultima. Um, but yeah, I just, I mean, I was I was watching, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the market gardener, Jean-Martin Fautier. He talks about how indispensable his all his like uh, semi-automated tools are with like they're all run by drills you know it's 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 fascinating stuff but in my mind I'm like watching them I'm like I don't know what I would do without my hand tools because uh, I don't have I mean he's on a flat surface you know I'm on a hill and everything I do is by hand and everything is either bending over or you know and so it I have to have good tools. I have to have tools that make it so that I'm not sore at the end of using it. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you've got a, fl a flatter area in your in where you're living at. I think you're hilly um, where you're at, right? Uh, I I'm not on property, so I'm on a very flat lot, but it's it's not it's not property, so it's just a I'm a, currently in a suburban location, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, um, I mean. Nearby, it's it's hilly. I mean, the my, my concept of, of stuff is most of the time when you're talking about permaculture, even if it's it's not really that flat. And I mean, I don't want to buy a flat block. What am I going to do with a flat block? Yeah, no, no, I'm with it's you. Pretty boring. I'm really, really with you. It's in the nooks and crannies. It's in the microclimates. And also, I mean, it just it just you're facing it, especially if you're facing southward, I mean, you have the whole amphitheater facing the beautiful sun, and I love seeing, like, uh, like my own little uh, watershed outside my door, you know. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I've never worked in a flat lot, but I, I can't, none of those tools are ever going to work on my hill, and I've got rocks everywhere and everything, and None of that stuff's ever going to do me any good. Um, I'd have to, like, terraform everything, you know? And most people have got that, you know, kind of situation. And so it's really these hand tools, I think, and how, and how they feel. Because it changes the dynamic. It changes the mental landscape. Because you're like, oh, well, I feel like I could do that now because this feels so good in my hand that it's encouraging. It makes me feel confident. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite surprising how much you can get done when you start. So many people think, oh, it's so overwhelming. I, I couldn't do this with a hand tool. Well, you'd be very, very surprised um, how much you will get done once you start getting into the motion and getting your technique right. You know, you, it's not that hard. I mean, people worry about being on the, you know, bending over. I actually don't bend over when I get, I'm, I'm way too far off. I'm 6'2". I'm way too far off the ground to be bending over and using a rice knife. I actually kneel on the ground often or sit on the ground. Um, but I usually kneel on the ground with, with one, one, one foot on the ground, one knee on the ground. I actually just walk along like that. And I'm right down there. You're right in amongst the foliage, and you cut stuff. And I just, I got, you know, I've got quite a long reach too. I reach over, and you can mulch the tree that's next to you. And there's no double handling involved in it. That's the great thing about rice knives when you're in amongst the, the food forest or the veggie. But there's you no know, double handling. You're holding on to what you're cutting, and then you've got the cut stuff in your hand, and it's bare underneath. And then you're putting it straight where you want to mulch it. There's no double handling. It's it's all one one motion, one go. Yeah, and where I'm at, I've got my beds uh, a little uh, raised, and then my path sunk, so I don't have to really bend over when I reach into my beds. 
Um, it's right there at my hip height. Um, so yeah, uh, and then the areas that are open uh, outside of my uh, real swale, my swale bed areas, uh, I, I totally go down on my knees and, and do that. It just, I mean, the thing is, it's unless we've got animals to do it, we've got to go out there and do it. And I don't think, you know, I don't like the amount of. Uh, well, I mean, weed whacking just makes this stuff that blows away. But when I can lay it down and scatter this mulch that's heavy and thicker, especially when I get to time it, um, it, I mean, my soil is getting better and better and better because I'm selectively chopping and dropping continuously. And I, I just, I mean, I, I posted recently, I don't know if you saw that, but I posted about how, uh, you know, if I, if I got rid of all my weeds, if I pulled them all out and I eradicated them, then I, I, where would I get my mulch? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm yeah. not letting them go to seed. They're not spreading, you know, but there's, there's seed bank plenty in the ground getting it up. So might as well chop it, drop it, let those roots stay in place and get endless, endless uh, mulch over your paths so that you're not compacting your, your, the soil in the paths and then it's breaking down. It's, you're, you're acting like a, an herbivore, you know, trampling things and getting like a compost tea in the swale paths you know so it's yeah I just can't imagine doing w w without it and I really appreciate that you're doing it I don't know of anyone else that's doing it um, and it's 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 people in permaculture that are these these mono links you know these single links to an entire world like I mean this your your toolmaker is a galaxy unto himself, you know? I mean, the, the tradition, the heritage, and the skill, and the knowledge. Um, the, I mean, the, you're opening, for, for all these people in America, you're opening this world, and you're connecting us to, you know, all this, this, this stuff, and no one else is doing that, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's quite interesting, because I, I get clients from, a whole range of stuff. So the, the the Australian Agricultural Department buy tools from me. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I've I've sold tools to the CSIRO of Australia, um, the Queensland um, uh, Agricultural and Fisheries Department, um, and another CSIRO department as well. And and I've come on and I've sold to four different agencies government agencies in Australia um, uh, my, my my hand tools so which is which is great to great to see I mean I we have um, I sold a, a, a bunch to the um, our heritage grain and research department for the CSIRO nice so it's always always good to to know you I mean if the government the government the government's specialised heritage, you know, grain research development branch is buying your hand tools. You're, um, you know, you're doing something right for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's that's pretty good. Um, 
and, yeah, and then and then at the other end of the scale, I had a I can't remember what it was. I had a petrochemical company actually buy some hand tools off me once. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was for the gardener. I thought it was quite interesting. And I was like, I can't remember what it was. It was somewhere in Queensland. It was something or other petroleum industries or something. <laughs> yeah, so that, <laughs> all sorts of quite array of range of, of people buy my tools um, from the avid home gardener to, to even some landscape professionals that do um you know that work more on in the lines of organic gardening and that um to yeah government the government agricultural departments so um and i you know i've sold to i also sell all the way around the world as well i uh, did my first order to syria the other day that was that was interesting so i've sold to india and and I've sold quite a lot to the Netherlands, and um, obviously, I, well, I don't run that anymore. But there's a someone else runs the the one in the states, so a lot gets sold to the states in Canada as well. So, I think I've done. Um, I've I've gotten Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, Israel, Jordan but nothing from Syria or Iran or Iraq. Um, and nothing from Turkey. Oh, no, I got Turkey. Uh, I got people in Turkey that got my books. It's fascinating, though, because um, it's spreading. And, I mean, the, there's, there's people looking for it in every single country and seeking it out. And I'm just so happy that we have the Internet and we have all these connections and and infrastructure really in place that's been you know really put down by people who are volunteering their time you know i mean everyone in permaculture really is a volunteer <laughs> in an effort to make things better yeah yeah that's right um it, it is interesting having that that access and, and that's what a lot of that's what the my that's what permaculture tools is all about access to the tools to get them anyway um you know people ask oh where do you send your tools to anywhere you like if you've got a postal address, it'll go there. Um, people get worried about um, customs, and I'm like, well, depends on the customs in the, in the country, but internationally wise, there's nothing illegal about my tools. Um, they're not double-sided. They're not weapons. Um, so, so they, they. I mean, I, I've the the only the only country I've, I've, I've had any issue with was uh, Italy, and they just wanted more information. So. Um, now I have a I, I put a special label on any tools I send internationally that has a full description on it and it has my contact details. Well, um, maybe maybe so they that, just wanted to know where to get some tools. I mean, the Italians are their <laughs> inquisitiveness. Maybe they just wanted more. Yeah, well, they um, um, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I fill some stuff out. Some of them they go, "What's a sickle?" I'm like, "What?" So, oh, what's a sickle? You don't know what a sickle is? No. That, that's the most common thing. I, I, um, they don't know what a sickle is. Um, well, so, but, you know, I've, I've, I've got a label now on, on, that I put on the international tools. And since I've, since I've done that, nobody has, um, I've, I haven't had any, any inquiries or, or any, anything since then. So now I have this label. I have a label that I put on that has a description on it. 
Um, it's nice and big and clear. It tells you what's in it. I said, generally, this is what's in here. Um, this is where the country of origins are from. Um, here's my contact details and here's the website. So I suppose anyone that really questions anything goes, oh, it's this company. They can just, you know, everyone's, they just look it up on the computer and go, oh, radio, no problems. And then they just, it just moves on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on Spur of the Moment like that and joining me. You're welcome, Matt. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I'm, you know, I'm about to send you uh, this new book. It's it's already 325 pages without the pictures, so it's a little longer. Okay, great. <laughs> but I mean, I can't I, wait. It, it, I really wanted to to update things and to include um, enough curriculum for an entire year in a high school course. Um, nice, nice. So, and, and it's inclusive. I mean, what's really fun about I'm doing right now, I'm finishing with case studies. So I get to like focus in on your dad's farm, on Zaytuna and Jeff, on Jeff's farm. I get to focus in on Kermiterhof and Masanubu Fukuoka's farm and all these different examples like Jean-Martin Fautier uh, in uh, Quebec and uh, you know all these different examples uh, of expression of regenerative application and I even have you know like Wangari Matai the Nobel Peace uh, Prize winner in uh, Kenya um, because she's organizing people together to make social change so she can save the trees to save the forest to save the people <laughs> yeah so, it's been so much fun. I can't wait to share it uh, with you. It's, I mean, it's, it's so wild because, uh, I mean, we started talking like pen pals basically over, over Facebook uh, like a year, year and a half ago now. Yeah, a year and a half ago, yeah. Yeah, and now we're here. You know, it's pretty wild. It seems like... Uh, so much has changed since then, but uh, it's just been a year and a half. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, a bit's gone down in that that time frame. There's a lot of stuff that's happened. So, yeah, it's 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 great. So, so are you just finishing the writing of the book? Did you say like? Um, yeah, the you, high school you, the high school version. I've got some yeah. stuff to go back. I, I left some notes for myself. Uh, what I do while I'm writing is I try to stay in the in the path of writing and then if I remember something that I go go back I'll go to the section and mark it in red and I'll go back yeah. and, and grab those but I'm plowing through I'm in the final chapter right now and I'm doing I'm, I've got only three case studies left and one of those case studies is, is Rosemary Morrow and I think she's yeah. gonna share her story of working in Cambodia with us Okay. So, yeah. So I'm super excited because I'm going to be able to translate, you know, some epic permaculture history, you know, humanitarian aid work, um, you know, similar to stuff that your dad's done, uh, but it's you know this historical time period uh, piece because it was right after Pol Pot fell, and you know, I don't know if you know the story, but uh, it's it, it's fascinating, and so I hope to get that in there, and then I'm done. I've got a conclusion that I'm writing, and then I've got all, I'm, the hard stuff is going to come. People, you and everyone else that is on the peer reviewing crew can, can read it, but I've got to go and write the glossary, write up my references properly, and then put in the footnotes, and then 
<laughs> and then I've got to um, put in the index and then link it all in the formatting. And then I've got to make my peer reviewers biographies. Um, and that might be it. <laughs> yeah, see, that last bit would take me more work than the writing, I think. <laughs> Yeah, you know that that I have to wear more more hats, um, just because if I paid someone to like you know if you pay someone to do the the, the tedious work and it costs way too much, so you got to do the yeah. tedious work yourself. So that's why I do all my video editing. Um, so I'm just gonna do all that tedious work myself, and at the end of the day, uh, I'll be able to come out with it. Um, Probably a little later than, than, than I would have if I just paid for someone to do it. But then I'll be able to have a product that I, I know how to manipulate. And if there's things I need to change yeah. or... Because what's going to happen, I'm going to do the same thing I did last time where after you guys go through it, I'm going to make those corrections and then I'm going to give it to the Kickstarter crew and they're going to read it over as the ebook with all linked and all set up. And then I'm going to take that and fix it again. That's always what happens. Is we're all the thing with uh, with all the permies is we're fixated on is it right? Is it true? Is that clear? Does that count in all instances? You know what I mean? And then yeah, if the other people read it and you'd be like, oh, you didn't put the apostrophe there, and I'm like, oh yeah, right. That's a different part of my brain. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I have to like get over that first part where I'm like, is it right? Is it true? Does it scale? Does it you know what I mean? Like all the different questions that I'm asking on each thing. Um, and it takes a little bit to switch brains, but I'll get there. And then, and then from there, it, it, we're going to just print and go for it. Um, I'm excited. I'm really excited. Uh, it's going to be the, the first permaculture high school textbook. And, and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll just be going everywhere. And then it'll be this focus point for all the economic nodes and the educational nodes within permaculture that we have. Um, yeah. Because I want to see that, you know, that carbon farming solution by Eric Tonsmeyer, I want to see that in every single college. Every single college. Um, or senior high school, you know, it doesn't, it, it can go, I'm reading it now and it doesn't seem like it's too deep for 12th graders, you know. Yeah. So, lots of things on the horizon. I'm super excited. Um, yeah, it sounds great, man. So, all right. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I've got kids. I'm excited. Like. Yeah, and then that's the thing is I, I'm, I'm in this rush because all of our kids are just getting older every day in leaps and bounds. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the scary, th the scary thing for me is my, <laughs> I'm, I, I can't... I'm not very good at writing and, and, and you know, theory-based stuff. I, I have three degrees, but I, I can't spell to save my life. I'm a shocker. So I have no idea about grammar. I write stuff down and people read it and go, what? I'm like, yeah, well, this and other guys, yeah, but you didn't write that down. I didn't? Isn't that what it says? No, you're missing all the grammar. I'm like, oh, right, okay. Yeah. You're writing <laughs> <Not> Latin. <laughs> you know, Latin, it doesn't matter like, well, the order of the words, right, in Latin? Sorry? Oh, in Latin, you know, it doesn't matter about the order of the words. Um, so they it's just relative order. to what's in the context. Right, right. 
yeah, that's sort of how I write stuff down. Um, but like my daughter's already written three kids' books. Isn't that funny how that works though? It's like our, the things we struggle with, we work on, and we develop these muscles that translate into our kids epigenetically, and then they're like, whoa, like my son. I, I don't know if you have an example of this, but I was a musician, and my son um, puts me to shame. Like, he's unreal, <laughs> music-wise. And I was a pro, but it, it, I'm never going to be what he's going to be. Um, and it's just, you know, that's just life. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my eldest daughter, Haley, she's, um, I mean, she's 10 now, and um, and she can spell better than I can by miles like I, I i i ask her how to spell stuff because i don't know and but she does you know um and and she's uh i mean her vocabulary is not obviously nowhere near as big as mine but it's it's very large for her uh, for her age and her reading ability is is two years senior of hers at, at school um and uh it's it's it, you know it's in relation to words I don't know, she's much better than than, than, I, than I am. I just I just don't have that that skill set's just broken in me. It's <laughs> um, but it's 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 great to see that like, she wants to be a writer and, and she's not she, she's published yet that she wants to be, but she's got she's written three kids books already and uh, I haven't finished my first yet. Well, you know, I'll I'll tell you a trick that maybe can work for both of you: um, audiobooks. So she can jump much higher in her uh, comprehension level if she's not reading it. So our brains, it's like we have a limited amount of electricity, right? And so we have to read it, and then we have to figure out what it means. And so we're using the electricity, but if we're just listening, we're using more juice in our comprehension side. And so what happens is, and I've seen this with my son, um, before they even read, they can understand, and so their comprehension skills are always going to be ahead of the reading skills. Um, yeah. And so he started listening to The Hobbit and like Peter Pan, the original, when he was like five and six, and then like Robinson Crusoe, and we were like, oh, he's falling asleep. He's not really listening. Next morning, he's like, hey, Dad, so what's a cannibal? Do they really? Does that really mean they they eat people? I'm like, oh, oh no. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that happens. You can go to a higher reading level if you're listening. And yeah. I think... Well, it's, and that's quite, that's quite interesting because um, my, my, ex, my ex-partner is, um, is uh, very, very good at, at reading. I'm, I'm, because it's a lack of skill that I have, I'm attracted to, to individuals like that. So she would actually often read to me. Um, and I, I, I found it very, very easy. So that, that sort of makes a lot of sense what you're saying. So. so what you should do for your book is record it. Yeah, I had thought about that. And yeah. then you do it on Audible and release it as an audio book because let me tell I, you. I didn't think about releasing it as an audio book. That's sort of interesting. Okay, so let me tell you. Uh, Joel Saladin is releasing audiobooks that he's recording himself like like nobody's business. He's putting them out like constantly now. And they're, oh, wow. they're enjoyable to listen to. And on top of it, um, I'm sure they're easy to make because he's just talking for six hours and it's done. Yeah. Um, and I mean, 
if you really want to get crazy, you you could have uh, a machine or a program software that will literally dictate it and then hire someone to go through and edit it. Yeah, well, you can get that. That's a uh, dragon. Dragon speak is, is probably one of the better ones. Right. Yeah, we yeah. use that, and actually, in, uh, it, with kids um, with learning disabilities in schools now. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Well, I don't think my daughter has to worry about that, but I do. But she she wrote one one of the books she wrote. She wrote it while we were out to dinner with friends. That's incredible. My while dad. While we were waiting for dinner to come. My dad never wrote anything as a businessman, and that's the thing that people don't understand is it's like, people don't care whether you can read or write or, or they just care about results, you know what I mean? Like my dad yeah. recorded everything with a dictation and handed it off to someone else to write down and send and take care of. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. He, he hated sitting, he didn't use, he hated chairs, he, he would stand and pace and would just like, you know. And so I, everyone's different, and I think that this, uh, the way schooling works that makes us think that we need to be a certain way, when in fact, you know, it's probably advantageous that your brain works that way. I think, though, that, that if you did an audiobook, that would be great, because there's Joel, then Curtis Stone, the urban farmer guy, uh, is teaming up with Diego from Permaculture Voices. They're doing an audiobook. I'm doing an audiobook with my wife, about uh, us meeting and uh, fighting cancer, um, specifically her cancer, not mine. I don't, I don't have cancer, um, hopefully. Um, and uh, we're just we're just telling her a story, and uh, you know, hopefully, the capstone of that story will be us uh, moving onto our own land. Because um, I mean, we're not in suburbia, but we're not on our own property. And um, yeah. so we can't make decisions and can't set up like real, I, I can plant trees, you know, those are lasting, but I can't do anything that I really want to do. And I think most of us are kind of in this position, Daniel. I think most of us are, that's why I started that group, Permaculture Entrepreneurs. I mean, it's because of yeah. your example, you know, and, and, and what I'm living. It's just, we need to figure out how to make this economy work because the other economy is not going to serve us. No, no. Well, I am, um, well, like, like I was saying with the, the company I work for, I, uh, as the permaculture gardener, I trade, I do a bit of trade. I trade biofertilizer. I trade stuff, um, with, with other colleagues, um, in the industry. So I have someone that does my, you know, Wayne, he does my illustration. So I trade services with Wayne for stuff um, um, and I've traded it with other people before because you know I mean I've traded stuff with the Permaculture Research Institute before you know there's no money exchanges hands because because we both have things that we both want so we just trade off services or products that we both have um, so just alleviating this whole money thing so yeah the great thing about that is you don't have to pay tax on it yeah, I, I mean, I write about that in the book, um, and not as a subversive thing. It's just a new economic model as, as a way of just creating a, a healthier economy. When it comes down to it, if we had an abundance, no one would care about giving some of that abundance to anything to help the government or help other people. You know, people don't don't care about that. What we care about is the fact that we can't establish an abundance. And so 
I just think that if once we can establish an abundance for real and we have an economy that's actually healthy, those kind of things, you know, they aren't gonna they aren't gonna be that big of a deal and they won't even be that necessary. That's the other thing. And we won't need as many taxes. So I think it's like a holistic answer and if we just pull those funds out of that economy and put it into healthier economic modes like bartering, because bartering is a social economy. It's not um it's not like a corporate economy. It it the values in it are completely subjective. Yeah, that's and, right. And because of that, that creates a completely fluid economy um, where almost um, anything can happen. There's no static values like in a corporate economy. And that's what they want. They want static values because then there's predictable um, ranges and expectations and then they can make bets on it and then they can make money on the, on the outcomes of those bets in the stock market because they felt yeah. safe in making those bets. But that, once again, that's just creating this thing to create this thing but none of those things are real <laughs> we need economies no. that actually generate and store energy like our permaculture sites do yeah so yeah I think uh, your example and and uh, and what I'm trying to do um, is spread those kinds of examples so that we can get more people uh, into the abundance side of the economy because it exists ready for everyone I think yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you just got to find out what what you can do that's of value of value to trade with others. Like my fertilizer is a great a great example. I have the the means of capacity to make a large amount of it, and I can trade it with others that don't have the time or the available resources to really make make it, and they don't have a, a, an available amount to make large amounts of it. I can make a large amount of it, and I can swap it for other things, and then they can use it to make more produce that I can then swap with to make more produce with. <laughs> Absolutely. It just goes around and around and around. Like I traded some biofertilizer to get cow manure to make more biofertilizer. And I mean the whole idea of being <laughs> being the lone man or lone woman, you know, and doing it all yourself is a very lonely position to be in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, ever since we met, I felt like I've always had someone in my corner in permaculture to, to guide me and uh, help me out, uh, and I really appreciate that. So, Daniel, I appreciate you, and uh, I hope that more people learn about you and your example and the, the amazing work you're doing with tools. And uh, I can't wait to study the, the course that you're going to be putting together and maybe listen to the audio book uh, that you, you put together um, and hear more about your adventures. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, Daniel. Well, have a good night. Okay, thanks, man. All right. Nice talking to you. All right, nice talking. Okay. Peace. Bye. Bye.